We have been in a continuing series called Expectancy, and we've been doing a verse-by-verse experience through the Gospel of Mark. And I say experience because our desire is not merely to just read through a book and read through the verses and to say we've accomplished it, but really it is to encounter and experience the power of God in our lives as we encounter His Word. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 21. And we'll read this together, really progress through it a few verses at a time, and we'll look at this story together in just a few moments. But as you turn there, have you ever slowed down, perhaps even this morning, to think about the different intersections that you came through to get here? To think about the different intersections that you drove through to arrive here at this place, or perhaps tomorrow morning, or even on your way home, to think about the different intersections that you're going to drive through to get home. If you're like me, and I would imagine a few of you are, I really don't think much about the intersections unless the light is red and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this light is taking longer than it should. They had a longer turn than I did, and you're expecting this light to change. Or I think about an intersection when the person in front of me gets the green light and they're not going, and I'm thinking, come on, buddy, it's green. It's not going to get greener. I'm thinking about the intersections. Are you getting ready to go and someone goes and that really highlights to you that intersection or perhaps unfortunately you've been in an accident intersection. Those are the moments that really cause us to stop and think about intersections. Other than that, we really just primarily go through them. If your mind is on other things, sometimes you don't even realize you're going through them. We often have intersections in our lives far beyond just in the vehicle. We have intersections in our lives with people. Have you ever been in a grocery store, department store, and you're walking and you're kind of in in mission mode, you're trying to get to the thing where you're going or your spouse or whatever it is you're doing and you're coming down the aisle and you go around the corner and you're like face to face with a stranger? In that moment, you've just had an intersection with that person you've never known or uh, in that moment, you've had a face, a close up encounter with someone. But all through our day and all through our lives, we're having intersections with people Many times coming and going without giving much thought to the intersections that are taking place in our lives, the people's lives who are crossing ours and our lives that are crossing theirs. And all of these intersections, our lives are filled with intersections. Well, this morning I want to look at a story of an intersection that takes place between two people and their intersection is a combination of their needs as well as an encounter with Jesus Christ and both of them leave radically changed and transformed from their encounter. So look with me in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 21. And as I'd mentioned, we're going to read a few verses. We'll pause, talk about them, and then continue on through the story. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd had gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now just to pause there for a moment, if you compare this crowd with the crowd on the other side of the lake... If you were with us last week, we looked at how Jesus uh, rescued a demon-possessed man, and there was a crowd there that they arrived there, and they said, Jesus, we don't want you here. We want you gone. They, they begged him to leave. And so on one side of the lake, you have a crowd who, who doesn't want Jesus there. On this side of the lake, we have a crowd who is hungry for Jesus. Verse 22, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And let's just pause there for a moment. The first person we've met at this intersection as they're going through life that is about to have an encounter with Jesus and an intersection with another person. The first person person we meet is a man by the name of Jairus. 
There's three things I want you to know about Jairus as we go forward in this story. First off, we need to understand that Jairus is a man of standing in his community. The very fact that we know his name and the lady in the story we're going to meet in just a moment, I'll introduce you to her in just a moment, but her story comes and goes and we never know her name. In fact, we only know her by her issue. We don't know her name. Jairus, we know him by his name. He's a man of standing. He's a man that is, a man that is recognized. In fact, in, in other accounts in the Gospels, Jairus is told, we're told that he's a ruler. He's a ruler identifying in, in a Jewish community. When a Jewish community was established, they would identify seven men to serve as rulers or elders or leaders of the community. And we understand that Jairus is one of those seven. He's one of these, these rulers. He's a man of great standing, a, great, a man of great status in his community. Not only is Jairus a man of, of great standing, he's a man of great faith. We see that in him coming to Jesus, but he's a man of great faith in the fact that he is identified as a synagogue leader. Being a synagogue leader is, being, is very different than being one of the rulers that was identified, as we've talked about, one of the seven. It could have been one of the seven men, but a synagogue leader was, could be someone different. And in a synagogue, they would identify three individuals who were faithful. Oftentimes, they were financially well off, and they were very committed to, to that synagogue, very committed to the teaching, very committed to the worship. And they became a part of the planning and, and the oversight and the leadership of that synagogue. And so we recognize that Jairus is a man of great faith, that he's identified as being one of the synagogue leaders. He was involved with scheduling who would speak. He was involved with making sure God's word was being read and, and interpreted accurately. He was involved with the worship, a number of things, just the schedule of the synagogue. And so not only is Jairus a man of, of great standing, he's a man of great faith. But the third thing we, we recognize about Jairus is that he's a man of great need. He's a man of great need. He comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. And he begins to share about his need, his, the need for his daughter to experience healing. His daughter is desperately sick, and he even identifies that she is at the point of death. But for Jairus to come and to be a man of such standing, a man of such stature, a man of such recognition in his community, to come in and fall on his knees and to bow before Jesus, a controversial figure at the very least, speaks a lot about the posture of, of Jairus's heart. In fact, when you and I read the story of Jairus, I think we'd be reminded of how important a, a humble heart is and how attractive it is to God. The Bible makes it very clear that a humble heart is very attractive to God while a prideful heart is resistant to God. And we see with Jairus, we see that he comes and he has a very humble heart. He has a humble posture. He won't let pride or status or stature get in the way of the potential of what God could do. When we look through Scripture, we'll see repetitively that oftentimes it's either someone's humility and willingness to, to step away from their status, to really to walk away from their pride, that they get an encounter with Jesus that changes them and they get a miracle that takes place that they've been waiting for. Or at times we have examples of people whose pride got in the way of the miracle that they could have received. In fact, I would suggest that there are other stories in Scripture that we probably don't even know of. People who perhaps are even in this very same crowd. But their pride kept them from encountering Jesus. Their pride kept them from the miracle. Their pride kept them from their moment of faith. And so you and I have gone through our lives knowing nothing about them because they never encountered Jesus because their pride kept them at bay from what he possibly could do. The Bible makes it very clear that a humble heart is attractive to God. 
Not only do we understand this man of this story of Jairus, the next person to step into the intersection is found in verse number 24. So let's read on together. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Just like I showed you three things about Jairus, I want you to notice three things about this lady that help us understand this intersection that's taking place. This woman is a woman of rejection. She's a woman of rejection. We can find this found in verse 25. It says, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She was subject to, she was submitted to, she was enslaved by this. Her, her body, she had been bleeding for 12 years consistently and repetitively. What, what Mark is identifying for us is that she has, a, she has an issue with her menstrual cycle and she, her, her blood flow will not stop at all. And she's a woman of rejection. According to the Old Testament in Leviticus 25, a woman with such an issue was considered unclean. To the Jew, to the Jewish system, to the Jewish religious system, to, to the to this system of worship, someone who was unclean was someone you did not want to be around. Someone who was unclean, when they touched you, you would then become unclean, and you had to then walk through a very laborious uh, uh, set of ceremonies to be able to become back a part of the community, a part of the people, a part of the worship system. So this woman was considered unclean. She lived her life in isolation. She was a woman of rejection. She lived her life in isolation. In fact, I would probably assume that for this woman to come into the crowd, to come into this moment, to come into this massive crowd that has gathered in around Jesus, she probably has covered her face or concealed her identity in some way. Because anyone who would have bumped up against her or she would have bumped up against them in pursuit of Jesus would immediately be considered unclean. She would have immediately compromised their ability to go and worship at the temple, to be around the crowd, to be around others, to, to really ex- experience community. In fact, what Jairus experienced on a daily basis and probably took for granted, being able to walk into the synagogue, to walk into the temple, to walk in around other, other people of faith, she could only dream about. She had to live at a distance, experience life from a distance, experience life from afar because she was a woman of rejection. Not only was she a woman of rejection and was perpetually alone, she is a woman. Secondly, she's a woman with nothing. Verse 26 tells us very clearly, it says, She had had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Mark says she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And the words he uses are rather interesting. He says she suffered a great deal. And what he, the word he uses is really describe, if you were to take something and you were to take it as a whole and you were to slice it up into a lot of little parts. And he says she suffered a great deal. She's been, her life has been dissected and cut apart and everything of value has been taken out. That she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She is depleted financially. It says she spent all that she had to try to get better and thinking about her condition making someone unclean for her to even find a doctor who would be willing to to talk to her, to be around her, to touch her would have cost just a very large amount. And so she spent everything to try to find help and to find nothing. So it's depleted her financially. 
It's depleted her emotionally. Can, if you have dealt with if you have dealt with a prolonged or chronic illness of some sort or chronic pain, sometimes the greater issue is not the pain you're dealing with. It's the impact that it has on you mentally and physically day in and day out and day in and day out, hoping that it's going to change, finding that it never does. Her circumstances have divided her up and they have depleted her financially. They have depleted her emotionally and physically. And it's depleting her physically. With the constant flow of blood, the loss of blood had a potential to leave her very weak. And when Mark says she was subject to bleeding, the word he uses suggests a dangerous place. That her life was really in jeopardy with the constant bleeding, the constant losing of life through her. That her issue had taken its toll on her. And not only was she a woman of great need, we see thirdly, she's a woman of great faith. The story tells us that in just when she hears of Jesus... She begins to take steps of faith towards him and she won't let restrictions, she won't let hindrances, she won't let pride, she won't let the opinions of others keep her from getting to what she sees as the answer to her needs. She fixed her heart on Jesus. She fixes her desires on Jesus. She's a woman of great faith. Others have seen his power and yet have still struggled to believe. Just a few uh, stories back, we looked at Jesus and the disciples in a boat in a storm, and they've been with Jesus. They've seen his miracles. He's in the boat with them, and yet in the midst of the storm, and he calms it, he says, you have little faith. You have no faith. This woman hasn't seen the miracles of Jesus, but yet she's moved with faith that those who are constantly around him don't have. And she begins to step forward in faith. And as she moves forward in faith, what Jesus, what one touch and one encounter with Jesus does in her life, the previous 12 years of all the wisdom and human, of, of man has, has not been able to. One touch from Jesus transforms her life in just a moment. Look in verse 29. It says, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Immediately the healing was instantaneous. The healing was like specific in that moment. Just like in the previous story, Jesus is on the lake. He speaks to the storm and instantly the storm is gone. Jesus comes later. He's on the other side of the lake and he deals with a man who's possessed by a demon and, and what people could not do in a moment with Jesus' words, this man finds freedom. And in this moment, in this woman's life, immediately she finds freedom and she finds healing from Jesus. But let's look on in verse number 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you ask me, or you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace." And be freed from your suffering. This woman was accustomed to having people see her and identify her. She, was, she would stand out because of her issue. And so the last thing she wanted to do was to stand out in this crowd. But Jesus recognizes that there's been a movement of faith towards him. There's been a release of power from him. And he, sees in this, he recognizes in this moment something has taken place that has engaged someone's faith who has come to him. And so he pauses this moment. He pauses this moment to stop and to identify that she has, in fact, been healed. But more than that, he pauses this moment to help identify the importance of her faith. 
And her faith was demonstrated, I believe, not in the moment that her hand touched the garment of Jesus. Her faith was not demonstrated in the moment that the healing took place. I believe her faith was best demonstrated when she first began to take a step towards Jesus. Her faith was most demonstrated not when the healing came, but in her willing to pursue Jesus in spite of having a healing take place. She was willing to risk everything, to jeopardize everything, to have an encounter with Jesus. And I believe that that was the significant demonstration of her faith. That when she set her heart on Jesus, she began to show her faith. And see, friends, when we look at this woman in the story, and we'll continue on in the story in just a moment, but when we look at this woman in the story, I'm reminded that faith is expectant. Faith is expectant. Faith is looking forward. One example or one definition I've heard of faith before that I heard many years ago. I don't even know who had said it. It said, faith is that which makes sense only in reverse. Faith is trusting in advance that which only makes sense in reverse. It's stepping out in faith, even when we don't see the results, even when we don't see the end, that we oftentimes can easily think that faith is demonstrated when it's seen, when the results are seen. But faith is best demonstrated when we move forward and trust God, regardless of what we do or don't see by way of the results. It's a willingness to step out and trust God with the results. See, faith doesn't ignore reality. I've, I've talked with individuals and they'll be dealing with a physical issue. I can remember a friend a number of years ago who was dealing with, with something physical taking place in his body and, and I wanted to pray with him. I wanted to talk with him and I'd ask him, I said, what's happening? What's going on? And he says, well, I, I can't confess it. I can't tell you because, because that's confessing it and that, that's creating an issue. That's, that's a negative expression of faith. And, and I said, well, I want to pray for you. And he tried to explain it without expressing it. And And I was trying to tell him, I said, expressing the need is not a lack of faith. Expressing the issue is not a lack of faith. There are some who will say expressing an issue, expressing a need is a a demonstration of a lack of faith. It's giving that position or that, that issue authority of your life. I never see Jesus doing that. Jesus never denies the reality of a problem. He merely denies the reality of a problem of having final authority in any situation. And in your life, when there's an issue, it's not a matter of, oh, should I say it or not say it? Does that all of a sudden create a, a negative faith, a negative environment? But it's recognizing faith is not merely a denial of the issue, but it's rather faith is a willingness to deny the issue, its authority over your life. It's a willingness to trust and act God, act on God, the rea- greater reality of who God is and his nature that has been demonstrated in spite of the obstacle in front of you. That's what Jesus reveals with this woman, with her faith, with her willingness to go forward, her willingness to press forward, her willingness to not stop. It would have been very easy for this woman to let her assumptions about about what Jesus would or would not do limit her. But she's not willing to let her assumptions limit what Jesus could do. Instead, she moves in faith in spite of the impossible, and she experiences her her miracle. But I want you to see something else that takes place. Let's read on in this story. Beginning in verse number 35. We'll look at verse 35 and 36. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, 
Don't be afraid, just believe. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking. While Jesus was still speaking to this woman and commending her faith, Jairus gets a death blow to his faith. While Jesus is still speaking to this woman, the servant who, ha- who lacks all element of sensitivity walks up to Jairus and just says, Hey, Jairus, your, your daughter's dead. Quit being a bother. Quit being a nuisance. It's over. Just walk away. While Jesus is still speaking, in this moment, while they're still talking, and so Jesus goes from commending this faith in the woman to encouraging the faith of Jairus. He receives the news that his daughter, the whole hope that he had, had passed away. But I want you to notice something in all of this. That when we look in in verse 29, if you have your Bible open, you can see there, when it comes to the woman's miracle, when she pursues Jesus, there's a word Mark uses to describe what happened. And he says, immediately. When Jairus pursues Jesus with a need, there's no declaration of immediately. In fact, his situation goes from bad to worse. Her, her need is met with immediately. His need is met with, with a worsening of the condition. But it says this, that while Jesus was still talking to the woman... Jairus received the news. And so I love how it says it. It's almost like Jesus overlooks these guys are talking to Jairus. He says, Jesus is talking to this woman in the verse 36. So he's talking to the woman. He overhears the report coming to Jairus. And so he turns, he overlooks what they've said. And he merely says, don't be afraid, just believe. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. He encourages the faith of Jairus in this moment. But what I see in this moment, what I see in this story, that I've often wondered if Jairus would look back and recognize that Jesus is talking to the woman about her healing. Jairus is receiving the news about the deepening and the worsening of his crisis. To me, it's almost as if Jesus picked the intersection point where Jairus, Jairus would receive the news about his daughter. Jesus picked the moment. He knew that there was, there was these servants walking to Jairus, making their way towards Jairus, or really Jairus is with Jesus. So from one side you have these servants coming and pursuing him. From the other side you have this woman pursuing. And, and it's like Jesus creates this intersection between their two lives. Two people who probably have absolutely nothing else in common. Two people who perhaps have never even met. And Jesus creates this intersection point in their lives. He chooses the moment where her faith is acknowledged and where Jairus' faith is challenged. He chooses this intersection moment, and I believe that what Jesus is doing in the life of Jairus is he's creating this intersection between their two faiths so that one's miracle could be the encouragement for the other. That the miracle in one person's life could become the lifeline in the other's. That they could recognize that in this moment, while my immediately may be missing, I can see that he he still has the potential and the ability and the power to change this circumstance. And I believe that Jesus is telling, really in this moment, as he's talking with Jairus, of course, we have the words that he says to him. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. But what I hear Jesus saying to Jairus, he says, listen, you brought the need to me. Just trust me with the results. You brought the issue to me, didn't you? We're headed to your house right now. I haven't changed course. I haven't changed direction. So if you gave me the need in the beginning, why don't you trust me with it to the end? 
Why don't you trust me with this need as we walk it out together? I want you to see something. Look with me. If you have your bullets and if you have a piece of paper, you can stay there in Mark chapter 6. We'll come back there in just a moment and we will continue to read the story together. See, I believe that bringing the issue to Jesus is really never the problem. Bringing our needs and our issues to Jesus is, is never the challenge. I believe the challenge comes when we don't see our immediately, when we don't see the results. And so the challenge is a willingness to trust him, even with the process and the journey and everything else that comes in between the time we give it to him to the time we see the results. It's a willingness to trust him with it. And with that, I want you to see James chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It says everything that God does in our lives is anchored in his goodness and his perfection. And sometimes when, when you will read this passage or we hear the word good, we'll, we'll impose upon it our idea of good. If you've ever had someone give you perhaps a, a box of chocolates, one of those little gift boxes that it has all sorts of different types of chocolates in it. Some have toffee, some have caramel, some have almonds, some have nuts, some have coconuts, some have any number of things. When you begin to dig into that box, you're looking at the little code of what's there and you're trying to make sure you find all your favorite chocolates first before someone else does. And you grab one, you eat it. Oh, that was so good. And you'll eat another one. That was so good. You'll take a bite of another one. I don't know what this is. And you're like, oh, that was not what I thought it was. Someone put that in the wrong place. And you, you put it off to the side. But when you're done with that box, you go to the person who gave it to you. Do you go to that person and you say, hey, that box was 90, about 96% good. Or do you tell me, that box was, was 98% good. There was two of them I didn't like. You don't. You go to them and say, that was, that was a great box of chocolates. Thank you for thinking of me. That was a good box of chocolates. See, when we use the word good, we talk about mostly good. We realize there's some stuff in the middle that we may not like. There's things that we may not agree with. But all in all, it's pretty good. When the Bible uses the word good that's used in James chapter 1, verse 17, it's not using good the way you and I use good. The word that, that's used there describes a goodness that is good from top to bottom, first to last, front to back, inside and out. Every single piece, every single part, every single bit of what God does is good. And it says every good and perfect gift is from above. And when it says perfect, sometimes you and I will look at perfect the way we want it to be. And we'll look at perfect and to use this past week as an example. I might say, well, how, how was last week? Was last week, was last week good? You say, well, my weekend was perfect, but my Thursday was horrible. My, my, these many days, they, they were perfect, but this day was not. And we kind of focus in on a small part of it. And we, perhaps we recognize the things before that, that, that was not. But in James chapter one, verse 17, when, when James writes the word perfect, just like he did with the word good, he doesn't impose our idea of perfect onto it. Instead, he, when, when scriptures talk about perfection as God sees it, he's talking about he sees the whole. He sees the beginning. He sees the end. And he sees everything in between. He's looking at your life and he's looking at it. It says everything that God is doing is good and perfect. And then he says that, he says this. He says, God does not shift, change like shifting shadows. That when you walked in today, there's shadows in the parking lot that are going to shift because the sun and the earth and all of these things has moved. But regardless of the position that you find yourself in the position of life, God's position in your life is a constant and the same. 
And that is that he moves from a, a position of goodness, a position of perfection, and that he is working in everything even when we don't see the perfection the way he sees it. That is trusting him in the journey with the results when we don't see the results the way we'd like to see them. That everything he does is good and perfect as we trust him in the journey. And I think there are moments like Jairus that we need to remind ourselves that God always does things good. That all, God always works from a position of perfection. And while I might be in the middle of how it's working and not see the end, I have to trust him with it. When you look at the book, the passage we've looked in James 1.17, we can read that passage and we may forget that just a few verses earlier, the same people reading this passage that are being, that are, this, that's being written to are people going through great suffering and hardship. And James is telling them, don't lose the faith. Persevere. Stick with it. Don't turn back. He's reminding them that in the midst of God's perfection, in the midst of his goodness, there's going to be a piece of your journey you may not like. There's going to be a part of waiting that you may wish you could get past. You immediately may not be in the place that you would immediately want it to be. But it's trusting him with it in spite of where he decides to position it. Let's look. Let's continue on in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 37. Let's continue on in our story. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And in, in Jewish culture, there, because it was, uh, the, the funerals would take place the day of, Jesus went to find, Jairus went to find Jesus to come as a healer. Instead, he, he goes to get Jesus to stop a sickness. He returns home to a funeral. And when he arrives home, Jairus, because of his standing in the community, a typical funeral that would have already begun would have had professional musicians, professional wailers, professional mourners, part of just symbolizing and, and helping recognize just the grief in that moment. And so Jairus comes home, and there would have been a very large crowd because of his standing and his status in the community. And so Jesus comes, and he says, The child is not dead but asleep, but they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and, and said to her, Talithia kuam, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. When I read this story, and Mark makes it very clear, this girl got up, sort of walking around and eating. He wanted to make it very clear. Listen, this miracle took place. Jairus immediately came. If you look in, in verse 40, 42, his immediately came. It was just in a very different place in the story than he probably wanted it. But his immediately came as he trusted Jesus with the results. But there's a key verse in what we've just read that I want to, I want to back up, and I want you to see for just a moment and then I want to give you just a few ways quickly that you can take and apply some of what we've talked about this morning. It's verse 39. It says, He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. The child is not dead, but asleep. The child is not dead, but asleep. What I hear Jesus saying to Jairus, and I hear him saying to Jairus' wife, and I hear him saying to his disciples, 
He says he has the final say in any and every situation. He says, don't call dead what I'm willing just to say it's asleep. Don't, pause, don't put an end where I'm simply pausing. Don't call it dead when I'm looking at it as asleep. When I'm saying this isn't done, this may look like dead to you, but this is merely asleep to me. And at any moment, I can awaken it, I can stir it, I can transform it. And I look at that, and I look at our lives, and I look at your life, and I, I think, how many times in our lives are we willing to declare dead over something that God's merely looking at and saying, just asleep? That there could be dreams here, there could be marriages here, there could be families here, there could be siblings here, there could be loved ones here that you've been looking at for years, and you've been saying, dead. And Jesus is just saying, asleep. It's asleep. Just trust me. It's asleep. It's not dead. It's asleep. Just trust me. Just trust me in this. It's not dead. It's asleep. So often we're willing to declare dead because we don't see the immediately when we want to see it. And yet Jesus continually says, it's just asleep. I've got the final say. I've got the final word. Just trust me in this journey. Trust me with it. And what I see Jesus doing with Jairus, as he often does with you and me, is he takes us from our moment and from our space and what we've defined as faith and what we've looked at as comfortable and what we've looked at as being what we're used to and what we've defined as our steps of faith. And he takes Jairus' step of faith and, and his parameters of faith and he begins to expand it. And he begins to expand it to a point to bring Jairus to a new understanding, a new dimension of faith, a new walk of faith, a new dimension of trust. He takes him from here and he expands him to here. In moments where Jairus said dead, Jesus is just saying, that's to sleep. Let's just stretch it to sleep. And you're going to see, ultimately, the power and the authority that I have in this moment. And I think that for many here this morning, that I believe you're going through times where God has been using matters in your life, perhaps places and moments that you have been looking at and you've been saying, it's dead. And he's reminding you, it's just asleep. It's just asleep. It's not dead. It's asleep. Or perhaps you're in a moment of waiting, you're, you're immediately hasn't showed up in the place that you would have positioned it, or you're in a moment where you can recognize that the parameters of your faith are being stretched, and your life is being stretched as you're waiting and, and trusting God in the journey. And I just want to give you four things to consider, four things to consider in your journey of faith. First one, look for ways in which God seeks to encourage and increase your faith. Look for ways in which he's going to increase and encourage your faith. That can happen through others. In the story of, of Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood, God used a woman's issue and the healing that came in her place to be a source of encouragement and a place of life to the faith of Jairus. Look at how God may use others in your life. A couple of weeks ago, I'd mentioned, I said that, that God doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters to be avenues of blessing and comfort into the lives of others. If you're going through a time and a crisis of faith and a stretching of your faith, then look for who, other, who God may be bringing into your life to be an encouragement and a strengthening in your faith. If you're going through a season perhaps where you're, you don't feel your faith being stretched or you're not in a season of waiting, look at how God may want to use you as a source of encouragement into the life of others. He also can bring encouragement and, and strengthen our faith through his word. I'll, I'll mention often to you the importance of memorizing God's word and letting God's word be the declaration in your life. 
to continually expose your heart to the truth of God's Word, to memorize His Scripture, to keep it in front of you, to put it, to put it in your house, to put it on your car, you'll always only be as strong as your commitment to God's Word. And it's in the moments of faith and the testing of our faith that we need to recognize our strength is not found in who we are, but it's in the strength that comes through His Word as His Spirit takes that and quickens it and makes it alive in our hearts. And as we are continually memorizing and recognizing the truth of God's Word, it's keeping His perspective in front of us. It's keeping His perspective on a matter in front of our lives, not our perspectives. It's His perspective. Another way that He can strengthen and encourage your faith is through circumstances. That I believe the most revealing tests of faith are the ones that we don't know we're currently taking. As you're going through things, pause and take a moment. Find a way just to pause, to back up and to, to look and say, how is my faith being stretched and challenged in this moment? How can I respond differently? How, can I, how is it that, that in this moment, while God may use others to encourage me and he may use his word to bring strength, but how in this moment can I respond differently? That he can use your moments to bring encouragement and to bring strength. Secondly, focus more on God's nature and not your issue. Focus more on God's nature and not your issue. Mark Batterson, a Christian pastor and author, he, I remember years ago listening to a sermon of his, and, and he said this. He said, there comes a point in life where we need to stop telling God about our mountains, and we need to start telling our mountains about our God. That there comes a point in life that we need to stop telling our mount, telling God about our mountains and we need to start telling our mountains about God. That it's choosing to focus on His nature and not the issue in front of us. See, when we let our mind focus only on what we need done, you let your mind fix only on what you need to see God do, and that if that becomes your focus, then all you're going to ever see is what God is not doing. All you're going to do is begin to look at, well, he still hasn't done this. He still hasn't answered that prayer. He still hasn't come through here. He still hasn't answered this. He still hasn't provided this. Instead of focusing on, on your issue more, focus more on God. Focus on his nature. Focus on the way that he has been faithful. I have found that when I focus more on my issue, I see less of God at work. And the more I intentionally focus on God, the more I see him working. It's choosing to focus more on God's nature and not my issue. Instead, focus on how he's been faithful. Focus on how he has answered. Focus on how he has provided, how he has cared for you. Don't give more thought to your issue than to God. Always make him first and center in your, shirt, in your journey, in your struggles, in your daily life. Don't give more thought to your issue than to God. Number three. Counter doubt with faith. Counter doubt with faith. Use doubt as a reminder to focus on his faithfulness in your ways. Use doubt as a reminder in your life, as a trigger, and as a reminder that you need to focus on God in his ways. You need to focus on how he works. We fail to realize that sometimes the greatest demonstrations of our faith don't feel like demonstrations of our faith at all. They don't feel like it. Often the greatest demonstrations of our faith are moments when your faith is being challenged, your faith is being tested, and you're choosing to remain strong and steadfast in the midst of it. It's, it's trusting him and countering the, the doubts, countering the questions, again and again standing firm in your faith, that in those moments you may not feel like your faith is growing or your faith is holding, but that's exactly what your faith is doing. 
The late pastor David Wilkerson used to say that your faith is your fight. Your faith is your fight. Your willingness to stand is a demonstration of your faith. Your willingness not to give in is a demonstration of your faith. Your willingness to lean on the nature of God and not focus on your issue is a demonstration of your faith. See, we have a tendency to make our feelings the focus. And so if we feel it, then our faith is functional. If we're feeling good, then our faith is moving. If we're feeling it, then, then God is working. And we make, we make that our feelings are a key part of our faith. But Jesus never focused on feelings. Jesus always went to the heart and looked at faith. He always focused on faith. And there are going to be times when you're moving in faith and growing in faith and standing in faith that your feelings are going to align. But then there are going to be times when you're moving in faith and standing in faith and growing in faith that you're going to feel like anything but being faithful. You're going to feel like your faith is faltering because you're wrestling with the doubts. You're wrestling with the questions. You're struggling again with the same issue. You're, you're there, but God is reminding you that those are moments that your faith can grow. Those are moments where your faith can be stretched, and those are moments where He is faithful. And then lastly, trust God's timing, especially when you're immediately doesn't happen when you think it should. Choose to trust his timing even when you're immediately isn't placed where you think it should be placed. That when you don't see it in the way that you think you should. Jairus moved forward in faith with Jesus even when his immediately didn't happen and someone else's did. He didn't falter. He continued to go forward. He trusted Jesus. He put his heart, his faith in Jesus, and he ultimately saw the results. See, Isaiah 55 verse 8 says this. In Isaiah 55, God says, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so there are t- there's things of timing, there's things, there's issues, there's things that we're facing that we may look at and say, God, I don't understand why this isn't happening. And my, from my perspective, here's the answer. Here's the solution. Here's the way this should happen. But he says, but my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. But the way that I'm always working in your life is faithfully good, is faithfully perfect. And in the end, I'm going to see the results through. I'm going to see the answer through if you'll just trust me with it. And that when we trust him to place the immediately where he feels it should go, the results are far better than anything you and I could have placed or positioned on our own because it's a willingness to trust him in the midst of it and to trust him through every step of the journey. Once you stand with me this morning, let's close in prayer.